welcome to the second episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. We're launching this podcast to highlight the stories of everyday community leaders who break down barriers to entry for underserved and underrepresented entrepreneurs. We believe in equitable and inclusive access to the tools and resources needed to start a business. In this podcast, we will speak with some of the leading voices in the field of inclusive entrepreneurship and learn from their best practices to apply in our own communities as practitioners. Today, we'll be speaking with Del Gaines. Welcome, Del. Hey, how's Del. it going? Uh, going good. Thank you for joining us today. So please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, sure. So. My name's uh, Del Gines. I work for the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City in our community development department. And my responsibility there is um, small business and economic development um, with a primary focus on our seven states, which are really seven Midwestern states. Um, but I also do a lot of work around the system on small business. And uh, since I've been at the Fed, which will be 10 years in January, I've almost exclusively worked on um, entrepreneurship ecosystem building and working to build the field of practice. When I came in, I mean, it still is a, a very emergent field of economic development, but I, when I came in, it was really, you know, emerging. You had kind of a lot of, you know, mostly startup oriented, you know, ecosystems that were kind of all the rage at the time and coming on the scene, people were looking at Silicon Valley as kind of that, that standard and maybe some of Bradfield's work in, in, in Colorado. But, you know, since then, you know, we've seen people, you know, take the ecosystem building as a concept and apply it, you know, outside of the startup space, outside of the tech space, you know, layering in the inclusivity, trying to bake that into the cake as the field solidifies. And so I've been fortunate enough to be one of the national leaders really trying to help usher that you know, inclusivity and also build the field and make sure that those two work simultaneously. So it's been a fun ride. Can you tell us a little bit more about what do you think, in your opinion, are the most pressing challenges that are currently facing underserved communities? Well, I, I think it's the combination of racism, sexism, and geographic bias. You know, if we just want to be open and honest about it, because all, all three of those are systemic. And, and when we say ecosystem, you know, the root of ecosystem is system. And so racism is a system, sexism is a system, and geographic bias functions on um, a system's orientation towards economic development. Let me give you an example of geographic bias. So the dominant economic development strategy is industrial recruitment. Industrial recruitment prioritizes a few things. Workforce, the skill of that workforce, access to transportation, and quality of life. And so when we see where the majority of firms that are recruited end up going to, it's not that rural community with 400 individuals. It's not that rural community off the beaten path with maybe 10,000 people and the average, you know, work, uh, average age of their population is 45 plus. They're going to your urban center. So you see this kind of urban agglomeration that's in many instances driven by the industrial recruitment model that's so dominant in economic development. That's a geographic bias that has significant implications in a lot of our rural communities, which by the way, are also becoming increasingly diverse. Yeah. So you see those things, you, the, the racism, sexism, sexism conversation, I think, you know, people have been having a lot of that conversation, especially lately in, in light of the social unrest due to George Floyd and, and kind of how that's amplified with COVID and the disparities that are facing, you know, various populations and people of color, uh, you know, during that. 
So that conversation is kind of well-known conversation of how, of how discrimination plays itself out in the marketplace, it plays itself out in banking, it plays itself out in funding and sexism as well. I mean, I wonder if your, your listeners realize that it wasn't until like the 80s that women couldn't even get a business loan without their husband signing. <laughs> so, I mean, think about, we're talking about the 80s. We're not talking about the 60s, you know, uh, I Love Lucy. We're talking about the 80s, which is, which is not that long ago. So um, at, the, at, the, at the highest level, those are the things that we have to try to disentangle uh, when we talk about in- inclusivity. And in, many, in some cases, we need to make it explicit. In some cases, we need to address it implicitly. Um, we just need to be strategic about it because when people are confronted with some of these things, it, it, it can often trigger a defense mechanism that sometimes you don't want triggered and sometimes it's not, you don't need to trigger it, right? So it, it's, it's relatively agnostic for us, you know, me and you, David, to go out and say, there's economic value in ensuring that entrepreneurial resources are sorted to those with entrepreneurial talent irrespective of race, gender, or location. I don't know, you probably didn't see the article I wrote on Medium, but I, I talked about how you can't say you're a good ecosystem builder if you're not an inclusive ecosystem builder, because true inclusivity in your ecosystem means that you're, you're allocating resources to those with the most entrepreneurial talent so that you can create the greatest return. I mean, obviously economic return is not the only function of ecosystem building, but by and large, that's a driver of it. So if I'm giving a white person more resources simply because they're white, even if they're an inferior entrepreneur to the Latina that's starting a firm, my ecosystem is not functioning well, it's not functioning efficiently. So how can you say you're a really good ecosystem builder if you're not attacking issues of racism, sexism, and geographic bias in your ecosystems? And so we've been trying to get that message out and ensure that as the field of ecosystem building develops, that it's not an afterthought, but it permeates all aspects of of how this field emerges in terms of practice, the cool stuff you're doing in technology to, to, to kind of pull ecosystems together and other field building um, areas where we're, we're looking at growth. So give me a little bit more specifically around small businesses. What, what kind of programs should we be looking at when we talk about inclusivity for small businesses? Well, I think it's, it's, that's a difficult conversation because there's so many things that are not programmatic in nature that go into ecosystem building. So culture is a huge component of ecosystem building that is often an understated culture. So in in the six dimensions of uh, elements of ecosystems, and I know there's different models, but in my PhD research, I kind of distilled it into six. You know, you got three things entrepreneurs have, which can be very programmatic oriented. And then you have three environmental factors that make kind of what we classify as the six elements. So you got your human capital, which is your, your talent. You got your social capital, which is your networks. You got your economic capital, which is what everybody talks about, which is access to finance, credit, and capital, and the ability to utilize that effectively. Those are, those are like your entrepreneurial tools. You can do great programming around those. Now, when you do programming around those, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if your, your listeners have, will have gotten a chance to read the guide me and Randy Sampson from OHUB wrote on um, entrepreneurship ecosystem and building communities of color. Like we talk about the distinction between an inclusive entrepreneurship ecosystem and an ecosystem in, built in a community of color. Those are very, it's a very important distinction because while they interrelate, they're very distinct. So when we talk about inclusive ecosystems, we're really talking about creating pl- programs, networks, relationships, et cetera, 
where let's say an African-American woman could go into a startup space that traditionally used to be dominated by, by maybe white and Asian males, young and young white and Asian males. And now when she goes into that space, she feels like she's, she's accepted, she's valued, that she has equal access to the resources and the networks that her young white or Asian counterpart male may have, right? So that's kind of that broader based e ecosystem inclusivity. And, and you can get into a lot of the diversity and inclusion conversations when we're looking at how to do that. Like, are we building programs that are actually informed by the populations that we want to include? Knowing that we can't be all things to all people, but that we're, we're, we're really using, you know, principles like in technology, tech, tech, tech developers are very good at using things like design thinking, you know, kind of that, that whole concept of empathy mapping, right? Like, are we really doing good empathy mapping and designing our programs or modifying our programs to ensure that we're being informed by these diverse groups that we really want to make sure that we're helping them engage and thrive in these pre-existing programs and activities that we have in our startup accelerators, our high growth spaces, whatever spaces that you want to design. And so sometimes, David, honestly, that's just being intentional about it. It is saying that we want to do this and making a commitment. Like if you can't get, you know, people programmatically to jump over that hurdle rate, then it's very hard to go further and make it truly inclusive and welcoming for these diverse populations. So you have, you have that as a factor, but then you have the element that me and Rodney really try to hammer home, which is that you have an individual that can be included in an ecosystem as a whole, but then you have a group that also from an economic development function and a social function needs to be included as participating in the growth of the entire ecosystem. And that's where you, you, you have a different set of, of strategies from both programmatic and then just social engagement type of work. So if I'm trying to build an ecosystem in the black community, then I'm going to really need to understand what are the drivers of behavior in that community? What are the thoughts, feelings, you know, motivations, how do I organize? Like we talked about prior to launching the podcast and, and, and how your model of, of really being able to get on the ground, do asset mapping, identify the gaps, because you can have what looks like a very strong, dense and deeply connected ecosystem at let's say the city level and go granular to the sub-community level and go to your Latina, your African-American, your Asian, et cetera, and find out that there's huge gaps. We have, it's, we have that in Omaha. I mean, we have gap, big gaps in Omaha regardless, but when you get down specific to the black community and organizations that serve and support entrepreneurship in the black community, it's almost non-existent. And so, you know, what, is, what does it look like when you do kind of things you do with, with, with your app and your strategy and your technology at that hyper-local level, at that sub-community targeted demographic level? Yeah. And how do you then roll that up into the broader ecosystem and ensure that every all the players are interacting and the networks and relationships are strong so i know you want me to talk about a few stories i'm going to point to um primarily the emergence of what emergence of what's happening in kansas city and and i and i'll be honest i've not seen any community across the nation at scale do this well like for and there's two reasons for that in my opinion one is because ecosystem building is a new field. So to expect a lot of robust, mature, inclusive ecosystems is, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves. We're probably gonna need kind of like a good five-year arc to see a lot of momentum. So I'm gonna talk mostly about 
where some of that momentum is. And, and, and I'll point to Kansas City. And he, here's an example. So when I started um, at the Fed, so I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. I work for the Kansas City Fed. So I go to, I, I spend a lot of time in both communities. When I started, um, Omaha had a pretty robust um, micro business, you know, community, micro business ecosystem. We had like eight providers that were providing micro loans, which is almost unheard of. Um, we had a lot of training organizations, traditional business plan, not a lot of high growth space stuff back then. Like you start seeing now, like no accelerators, no venture capital connects, things like that. They were all behind the scenes stuff. And so when I started, I'm like, you know, yo, I'm going to go to Kansas City and I'm going to see them doing all of this cool stuff because obviously they're bigger than Omaha. They got more black people than Omaha. Um, so, so I'm going to go up there and I'm going to learn all this stuff and bring it back to Omaha. I go to Kansas City. They didn't have one microloan fund at the time. They maybe had just started one and it was really small. They really, even if, in spite of the fact that you had Kaufman there, you had SourceLink there, there were still huge gaps in that local ecosystem um, in, uh, across all the spaces from Main Street, startup, micro, et cetera, you name it. And so I went there and I was kind of, honestly, I was a little bit disappointed. What I've seen in a decade is the complete reversal of those two things. Omaha has lost nearly all of their micro lenders. There's very few service providers, specifically those that support entrepreneurship in communities of color. And it's almost like we are now in, a, in an entrepreneurial desert in Omaha, relatively speaking. Kansas City, on the other hand, you know, they obviously, you know, SourceLink is continuing to do the work, you know, they're doing. Kaufman became more committed to the local engagement. Then you had all these things like digital sandbox hop up. Over the last three years alone, I can point to three specific entrepreneurship ecosystem initiatives that are targeted at communities of color. Rodney Sampson, who I referenced before, they launched OHUB in Kansas City, right? So that's there. Enterize, which is, is, is the, could potentially be, and I believe it maybe is, the, the largest minority entrepreneurship support provider of growth companies in the nation. Most people don't know about them because they white label most of their stuff. So it's the organization that is actually operating that program doesn't call it Enterize, they normally call it their program. But they're now in Kansas City. You had the city with, with Nia Richardson, who Casey Bizcare and the work that they're doing, which is very much targeted at minority populations. So you have those three alone that are now in play. I know they have at least with all cap, the women's fund and maybe one other, three you know, local um, small business dollar loan funds that are within that community. And then you have you know, the, the more attention that's being paid toward it with, for diversity inclusion in pre-existing programs like Digital Sandbox. Um, you have Startland, I believe it's Startland KC with Adam Arredondo. Uh, and there's a couple more, I know I'm missing them, but all of these things really came into existence over that period of time and either they're now directly or heavily working on ensuring that there's inclusivity in these spaces. And I would argue that that came about by probably two primarily driving forces, if not maybe three. And this is not to say they don't have still work to do. We are on a call just the other day with some of the some of the um, African American ecosystem builders in the space and and grappling with like you know how do we really work better together and get these things to scale and and, and create greater energy, but you had a mayor who said we want to be the most entrepreneurial community in the nation in in Sly Mayor Sly James I believe is his last name if I'm correct, 
you had Google Fiber who came in that, that said from an infrastructure standpoint, we really want to put dollars into, you know, this Google Fiber, which was big at the time. I mean, it's not so big to have a gig now. Back then, that, that was huge. So you layer those two things on top of it. And then you had, you know, you had the energy of the people who were trying to pull that work together and identifying it a need, primarily because the population of Kansas City, at least in the metro, I believe is 40% African-American. But yet, like most of our communities, we're way behind in the scale. We're way behind in terms of, you know, economic factors that would drive long-run city growth. So those melting pots of, of individuals who are coming together to kind of forge this new economy in Kansas City, I, I think has, has created, I'm hoping, and I believe though that it has, has created enough critical mass. And then, and then you have the validation from kind of so your, your anchor institutions, I will call them in the space, Kaufman again and SourceLink, that they are now that, that boulder that's rolling downhill. So Kansas City to me is a, a, a community to really watch as we talk about inclusivity because the pace at which they're doing it probably exceeds any other community, at least from an intentionality or Atlanta's a different story. Like there's so much just organic blackness there because it's a, it's, 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 there's a lot of gravity for African-Americans to go to Atlanta. There's already a lot of energy. There's a lot of wealth there. There's a lot of already social expectations, which goes back to culture of that. And so they just have to grapple with it a different way because there's still huge wealth gaps there. Um, so then you have like your, what I would call your emergent players in the marketplace. So Steve Radley from Network Kansas, I'm actually doing my dissertation on um, e-communities and, uh, and relationships and entrepreneurship ecosystems with, with Network Kansas. Well, they have a young lady down there who I've been mentoring five years named Christina Long, brilliant young lady, very talented, launched the, the Create Campaign and helps manage the Wichita e-community, which is their model of ecosystem building. Steve just posted and I retweeted the other day how uh, this new COVID response loan fund, I think out of the, the 53 loans that they, they made in like a very short window of time, almost like 75% of the, those that got those loans were women or, or, or people of color, which is almost unheard of in an open pool. It's not, it wasn't a dedicated pool, it was an open pool. Well, how did that work? Well, when you talk to, talk to Christina from the, the, that Wichita e-community and the folks around her, it was because they reached out to that network and they made a, a, a loan product that fit the demands and the needs of that diverse population. See, oftentimes, if you think of the marketplace, we're asking those diverse populations to meet the demands of the pre-existing structure. And we rarely question whether the pre-existing structure is flawed in and of itself. And it's what in the structure itself is what leads to some of the challenges that we face. So if, if I'm in an ecosystem and I need a, and I want Filipino men to be more engaged in my ecosystem, and my solution is simply marketing with the same marketing strategy, the same, uh, all of that the same, are you gonna capture some? Probably. But every good marketer knows that, that the best type of marketing is tailored towards the, the needs, desires, and expectations of that audience that you're targeting. And so a lot of times people will say, if we build it, they will come. Versus saying, if, if we build it, that is highly empathetic and informed by the individuals that we're working to attract and support, then they will come. And so to me, that's just the essence of inclusive ecosystem building. And the last thing that you said, what we have noticed, Del, is when you say it's for everyone, it's not for me. 
And we've seen that resoundingly. And that is our inspiration to go to the grassroots and to identify really what assets matter to each of these communities and then map them. It's not like we tell our, our clients, if you say it's for everyone, guess what? It's definitely not for the people you're going after. It has to be intentional. It has to be specific. It has to have programs, like you said, with specific marketing plans or tailored to meet those communities. I, I got a few things for you, David, and I don't know if you've ever thought of them. So I'm gonna kind of put you on the spot. I'm gonna put you on the spot since it's your podcast. And I think, um, am I guest number two? Yes. All right, great. You know so, guest number one. Guest number one is Jackie. You know, oh, okay. So, so, so here you go. When we talk about inclusive ecosystems, why have we never looked at how Chinatown works? Like you, you have these robust dynamic ecosystems within specific demographic groups that are doing really, really well and have been doing so for a long time, mutually reinforcing organically structured. They figured out ways to, for, for both formal and informal ways of doing that. Why have we never held them up as potential standards of ecosystem building? Let's go back in history. Um, I, I'm sure some of your, your listeners will be familiar with Greenwood, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street. Yeah. Like when people ask me and they say, well, where did this work really well? Like I, what you're talking about in inclusive ecosystem building, I said, well, it's very difficult to point to a very clear and tangible space where it works really, really well now because we're an emergent field, but let's go back to the Harlem Renaissance, you know, New York. Let's go back to, to Black Wall Street, which literally had to be bombed out of existence for a time to, to stop the prosperity that it had because the prosperity of this Black community in Jim Crow segregation was, was so great that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the white people were looking at the Black people in, in Greenwood and saying, man, they shouldn't be doing better than us and had to, had to create a pretext for destroying them. So like we, we have models that I think we, we always are looking for something new, but sometimes we need to look at what is and then combine it with, the, with where we're trying to be and see how, how do these things work? Like, because uh, I've never heard in any conversation, you know, saying, I, cause I was at, um, I was in Boston and their, their Chinatown is a little smaller just before COVID hit. And I remember walking through and I'm looking at, you know, the various shops, the uh, almost exclusively owned by, you know, Asian Americans and hiring Asian American workers and people like me and other people from different ethnic groups are, are going there to, to, you know, partake of their businesses, a lot of retail, but they had wholesale. And I'm sure that there's spaces where tech is supported as well. We just may not see it. And I may not be as informed about that. Nobody, and my, to my knowledge, just looked at them and said, What's their recipe? And are there pieces that are replicated? So I think, first of all, I appreciate what you're doing. Like, I appreciate the, 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 the technological lens that you're bringing to it, the, the lens that, you know, your application and your product has. It's, it's filling a huge gap and a challenge in the space. And I hope, hope you become a billionaire from it because I know that if you and your people are, that you will have served a very critical need in our community. Like we were talking about before, one that we've been talking about, like, so I've been doing this work now for, in, in the small business environment since the mid twenties. So we're going on to two decades, right? Uh, either directly or indirectly in the space. And we've been talking about that same issue of silos, disconnectivity, the, the entrepreneurs have been telling us, well, we just keep getting these barriers because we'll go to one and then we'll have to figure out how to go to the next. 
Um, and, and you solve for that. And we need more of those innovative solutions in this field because people don't understand we're, we're, we're tackling a giant. So, so what do I mean by that? Industrial recruit, with industrial recruitment, it's very hard to be inclusive. It's very hard to be inclusive. And people don't realize, most people don't realize that 60 to $80 billion go through states every year to incentivize the recruitment or the retention of pre-existing large firms. We know that, those, that, that the firms that produce the majority of, of, of growth, at least in jobs, are you know your your young scale up you know growth oriented firms so most of that 60 to 80 billion is not benefiting those firms except for the indirect benefit if those firms exist and support the supply chain of major corporations which is speculative at best so the better able we are to you know create new technology formulate new strategies enhance existing strategies show proof of concept in this space, the better we can go to these economic developers and policymakers and say, you know, I know, I know you have a vested interest in this and this pathway dependent a little bit, but, but look, we can show measurement, we can show proof of concept, we have an economic rationality background, you know, maybe just take, we could take 20 billion of that 60, 80, right? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be, be great? And especially, especially with the idea of inclusivity, because I do not want to do the work if we're not focusing on ensuring that there's, there, there's more equity in the work. Because I used to say this very early on when I started at the Fed, 2010, 2011, go around, do all these spaces on what we call grow your own. And I say, look, even back then I was saying, if, if we don't figure out a way to make this strategy methodology inclusive, all we're gonna do is take and reinforce the good old boy network in the 80s in corporate America and reinforce it in the high growth entrepreneurial space that is happening today. And really, we really started seeing that. You know, we started seeing that already because look at who we're modeling, Silicon Valley. Like that's, you know, initially we're, we're seeing a, a move away from that. Not so much, people so much aren't saying, well, Omaha, we want to be the next Silicon Valley. We're kind of getting away from that. That was a big thing, you know, like yeah. before, right before 2010, early 2010s. So we're kind of getting away from that, but in the back of their mind, people are still kind of thinking, if we could just be like Silicon Valley. And I was on um, Gallup's podcast, because are you familiar with BP10 and our business builders? I'm sorry, they call it business builders now. Yeah. And their entrepreneurial strengths finder. They're good friends of mine, Ty Johnson. I did his podcast the other day and he said, we were talking about Silicon Valley. And I said, why would people want to replicate Silicon Valley? Because you'd just be replicating a lot of racism and sexism. Right. It, it, like, I don't want to replicate that. Like, there's things that they do really well that I would say, yeah, that would be cool. But, but can we do it in, that, in a way that's inclusive? Or are, are we so hard, hardwired or is that field so hardwired or that methodology of ecosystem building so hardwired to be exclusive for whatever reason that we should just say, you know, let's not let's not even use them as an example at all. Let's take Brad Feld, Feld's. Um, you know, Colorado, and I got his book. And, you know, he was one of the nascent early stage, you know, really prime figures in entrepreneurship ecosystem building. And to his credit, he's really been self-reflective on how he does more diversity and inclusion in his work. But why would I hold up Aurora, Boulder, Colorado, as a standard ecosystem building for the black community in Omaha, Nebraska, when Boulder, Colorado 
had a, has a few unique features. One, they have more guys than women in their population, which is almost unheard of in any community when you average it out. Two, the average age of the population is significantly younger there than anywhere else, I believe, in Colorado and mostly in America. And three, you don't have hardly any people of color there. You have a lot of white individuals and, uh, and maybe some Asian individuals, but once you get beyond that, so I'm saying, how can I hold this up as a standard model or a practice when that model by and large does not represent me? It doesn't represent my people, doesn't represent my Latino brothers and sisters, doesn't represent a lot of women. So what can we then take from that model and say, okay, we need to figure this out because if we just take this wholesale, we're just gonna have a lot of uh, whites and some Asians, males, young, mostly young that are producing tech firms and getting access to venture capital, but does that really lead to the kind of equity that we want to see in our communities in the United States? So to you know, give you some of our perspective that we've seen on the ground, one is the lack of access to this data, right? To be able to get access to this data is critically important because it creates incentives. Uh, the second is when you look at just what you've described so far, we think that there's this very much of a scarcity mindset. Mm. They think that, you know, winner takes all or, you know, we're all fighting for the same money or, and those are both things that we're trying to negate. And we just had a launch yesterday, Dell, and you said, you know, these, there's going to be these bright spots that we're going to have to replicate. We had a launch in Oklahoma City yesterday. We had like five different ESOs come together and it was so powerful. It was an all day set of events to launch the platform, but we feel like that is the future, bringing technology as the plumbing lines or the backbone to, to bridge some of these gaps that have traditionally existed. And then doing it very intentionally, giving people the growth mindset that we can all have a multiplier effect when we come together. There's enough of it for everyone. So there's like so much money out there, right? That we are not seeing it the right way and we're not kind of coming together. So, you know, you've, you've shown us, you know, you've said Kansas City is doing it really well. What are some on-ramps our uh, partners or our practitioners can implement to bring some of that kind of very intentional inclusivity and diversity into their work. Let's look at lean startup. Like, man, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I, I think a lot of well-intentioned people, you know, make the mistake of trying to do everything all at once without recognizing that there's, there's different learning curves for different, different individuals, institutions, cultures, and organizations. So, what I would say is start by really grounding your actions. I mean, just take a step back, you know, and I know everybody's trying to do things and we're trying to work, but, but take a pause and, and step back and say, okay, how do we become intentional about this? You know, and make those statements explicit in your operations and with your board, have your board craft, you know, explicit. And it doesn't have to be super granular and say, we're gonna do X, Y, and Z. That's like second or third phase down the road. Just start with the commitment. And say, we are committed to this. This is gonna be part of our due north, you know, as our organization, as our ecosystem, or however, at whatever, you know, level or piece of the network role that you're, you're playing in that space. And then encourage others in your network to do the same thing. And then from there, you know, do simple things like, are we, um, you know, let's take, let's go to the program level because we know programs are one of the components within an ecosystem. Put a metric in there, you know, like put something that you're met, you're evaluating yourself by. 
And again, it, do, you don't have, it doesn't have to be a metric that's going to change the world, but say, you know, our demographics are, are X in our community. Our pre-existing service population is Y. How do we make Y look more like X? And how do we measure progress in that regard? Right? So start, start there and then make it a continued conversation. And I know this is very abstract, but the reason that I'm, I'm the reason that I'm keeping it abstract is because we need to start with an orientation towards something. We need to start with a paradigm of creating a paradigm of inclusivity, right? And if we can start with that, then it's much easier to, after that, begin to develop strategies because now your organization is already, I guess, philosophically oriented towards doing that work. Because it's very, what was it, Peter? I think it was Peter Drucker said, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. I think it was Peter Drucker. I would, could be Peter Deming, one of those two. It's a Drucker Deming said that. But it's, it was such a profound quote because basically what he was saying after his, his, his years of experience in corporate, you know, and analysis change and whatever, is he said, look, I could put the best strategy in front of you that, that could be the best thing since sliced bread for your business. But if your culture isn't correct, the execution of that strategy will never happen or it'll only happen on the margins and it, it, you won't be able to execute to the scale. So it's that paradigm, it's that culture of inclusivity, it's creating it as a normal state, you know, because there's a different, uh, somebody explained, um, explained it like this to me. He said, a fish can swim upstream or downstream the difference is he, he it takes a lot less energy and usually they go a lot faster swimming downstream. So if you don't haven't set that as a preset expectation, a preset culture, you're swimming upstream against it and it's always going to be a fight versus if it's just baked into your cake of your entity and your organization and it's a conversation you repeatedly have, it's something you keep in front of you, everybody knows. and, and it, when somebody says, oh, we have to have the diversity conversation again, you probably know you're doing it right, right? Because it's, it's just a normal part of that, con that conversation at that point. So at, a, at the highest level, that's what I would challenge all of your listeners to. Make it explicit, embed it in your culture, keep it in front of you, use that as a first start. And then once you get that ingrained in your culture, start adding a little bit at a time. Don't try to eat the whole elephant at once. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure having you with us today, Dell. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. You're doing such great stuff. And I'm glad that I know you and I'm glad to see the growth of your company. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Ponrush. Special thanks to Dell Gines for joining us. Cover art by show manager and creative director Mackenzie Dial Pritchard. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.